0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me my co-host Paul Doroshenko.
1: Hey, Kyla. I'm tired. How are you?
0: Uh, well, I'm on uh, going in tomorrow to day five of a constitutional challenge to random breath testing. So I'm just chipper and full of energy and not at all completely drained because I've been mm-hmm. working full-time hours outside of full-time hours in court.
1: Yeah, it's been uh, the weekend before the May long weekend since I last had a day off. And by that, I mean like a weekend day off. I've worked 10 to 12 hours every day since. And two days ago, I had a little dizzy spell. And then yesterday, I had another dizzier, dizzy spell. And then this evening, I had a third one. And I'm thinking four hours of sleep. Probably not good as a regular thing.
0: Yep, I hear you. I have also basically kept up that schedule, and that included my birthday and my birthday weekend because stupid COVID, and I just ended up trapped at home and worked the whole time. So I
1: haven't
0: haven't had a minute
1: off. (laughs) Well, my good news is I got the green truck out. Um, well, I changed the tail light lenses in it to nice bright bright red ones, and I drove it drove it today to work. And uh, this morning was beautiful. It was an absolute pleasure. And
0: I'm so glad that you have had an absolute pleasure in your life. like
1: yeah, twenty three minutes of it.
0: <laughs> well, that's more than me. So
1: I hear you. Already- not complaining. This is the life we chose, after all.
0: This is the thing. Anyway. Speaking of an absolute pleasure, there is an absolute pleasure that we should talk about this week. And that's a very interesting decision from the B.C. Supreme Court on immediate roadside prohibitions.
1: Well, there's three decisions this week. Which one do you want to start with?
0: Uh, Let's start with the one that is not ours. I read it. Yes. So this is a decision of my friend, John Duncan, who I finally got to meet in person last weekend while I was at the whole weekend long TLABC board retreat mm-hmm. <laughs> working. Um, and uh, this was a, a decision of the superintendent of motor vehicles adjudicator in a case called Rivard. And Mr. Rivard was given a driving prohibition um it registered a fail reading he had a second test the second test also registered a fail reading and there were a number of things that were argued at the review hearing and ultimately on the judicial review when the prohibition was upheld most of which get sort of dismissed very quickly by the court but one significant issue was not um uh was not addressed by the adjudicator properly and this is the most fascinating issue to me
1: it's also an issue that i've been arguing in every hearing so we're going to have to go back and <laughs> dig through our files because yeah this changes this changes the uh changes the game a little bit
0: it does so basically what happened was the officer filled out the report to superintendent. And for the uninitiated listener, the report to superintendent contains a number of boxes and the officer is supposed to fill in certain information in those boxes or check them off to indicate what they did. One of the boxes says time reasonable suspicion formed or suspicion time. And another box is approved screening device demand, where the officer is supposed to record the time of the demand. The form does not differentiate between a suspicion demand and a mandatory demand. And in the narrative, the officer can. Yes. Did you hear that? Yeah. I don't know what that was, but it was right outside my window.
1: Well... I mean, I think your dad's watching the uh, hockey game. And if the Oilers scored, that could have been him jumping up, knocking something over.
0: Who knows what it was? Anyway. The the Oilers
1: scored. They're not doing very well.
0: uh, In the narrative, the officer put information uh, about making a demand from a charter card but did not indicate which demand, whether it was under Section 320.271B or 320.27 sub 2. And on the uh, part of the form where the officer is supposed to record the suspicion, the officer crossed it out and just wrote an acronym, MAS.
1: Well, we've seen this before. So, and I've complained in hearings, and I've been saying this all the time. Um. And that is that the law changed in December 2018 to introduce these demands. And the BC form that we use for immediate roadside prohibitions is still this template. Now it's an outdated template. They're still using the old template. Despite the fact that in the summer of 2019, they made substantive changes to the Motor Vehicle Act to acknowledge the changes to the criminal code. But they didn't change their form, and the police have not come up with something, which is shocking to me is 2022.
0: Well, four years later. What they came up with was the police officers are supposed to write it in their narrative, but of course, the problem that exists when you trust police to do it right is that they don't. So
1: Well they may be doing it right. Maybe they're doing maybe he's telling the truth. maybe he made a mass demand. You don't know. What's a mass demand? I don't know. Something that they invented. And where was this? Prince George or Prince Rupert?
0: Prince George. Yeah. So, ultimately... um The court finds that the adjudicator's decision was unreasonable. So I want to take you through a little bit of of the decision. So paragraph 66, and you can basically skip to paragraph 66 when reading the judgment because the rest of it is dealing with all this other stuff. And it's not written very well, like as a judgment. Um, It's not very clear. So you can't really find what you're looking for easily. So go to paragraph 66, where uh, the court says uh, a central issue before the adjudicator was which section of the criminal code did Constable Lozada rely on in making the breath demand and then they set out the two different sections and the court says at paragraph 68 the adjudicator found that the demand was made pursuant to section 320.27 sub 2 the adjudicator also inferred that the charter card that was used by Constable Lozada contained the mandatory alcohol screening demand Both the narrative and the report are pre-printed templates which the officer fill in. Neither of these documents has a section or sections to be filled in if the demand made was a mandatory alcohol screening demand. And the court actually asked counsel for the superintendent, yo, why was this not updated when the legislation was changed? And of course, the superintendent's lawyer is like, I don't know. I can't say
1: I know nothing. So, well, I mean, he can't give evidence about it. What's he going to say? It wasn't. It hasn't been. That's all we can say.
0: I suppose. I mean, you can you can frankly answer the court's question. What the court can do with the information is another well,
1: thing. Yeah, I know. But that's the point. What that's the frank, That is the frank answer.
0: The frank answer <laughs> so, is, I don't know. They yes, didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So, So the court actually really focuses in on this form issue. Um there's there's a whole bunch of discussion about uh the adjudicator's decision and and indeed the the adjudicator did something a little bit silly where she said, "Well, I'm familiar with the wording of the mandatory alcohol screening demand and it's this," and then sets out the wording of the demand and then uses that her familiarity with it to conclude that the the officer must have read that demand, which Obviously, as we know, is incredibly unreasonable.
1: Well, the, the the government lawyer argued that MAS was a common acronym for mandatory screen alcohol screening that would be commonly known to the general public.
0: Yeah, the court rejected that in short order, saying, uh, "I don't
1: find that." Probably the first time the judges ever heard of it. Yeah, I don't. I, I I've never used that acronym. I've seen it a couple of times. Usually, it's fleshed out a little bit better than that. But it's still not fleshed out well.
0: Which, incidentally, is another example of one of the problems with not having impaired driving cases before the courts anymore. Now you have judges attempting to adjudicate impaired driving related matters, having little to no experience with impaired driving, and thus not being familiar with the lingo.
1: Yep. Yeah, true. The
0: court says at paragraph 79. I love this. The police have chosen to use pre-printed documents such as the narrative and the report, which do not have any sections relating to mandatory alcohol screening. These forms, by their very nature, create ambiguity in relationship to which breath demand was made by a particular officer. Court finds that the adjudicator was wrong in concluding that there was no evidence about the suspicion because the officer had partly filled out the information. It wasn't reconciled with the information in the narrative. And um, uh, the court said the adjudicator did not specifically make a finding as to what MAS meant, nor did the adjudicator address why MAS was typed and written in sections of the narrative in the report dedicated to a demand made under sub b of the criminal code. And uh, they then refer to the fact that the officer had said that he'd read from a charter card and cite the case of Byron, where the court said For adjudicators to take the notice of the cards carried by police officers, they need to know which card they are taking notice of. It is fundamental that the record be clear which card is being referred to in order for adjudicators to take notice with any degree of certainty. And at paragraph 87, Going back to this form issue, the court says the particular forms used by the police do not allow for a clear or concise description as to whether a breath demand was made on reasonable suspicion or whether a mandatory alcohol screening demand was made. It was not reasonable for the adjudicator to draw the inference by default that a mandatory alcohol screening demand was made simply because some of the boxes were not filled out in the narrative and the report which are documents that are only designed to be used when the peace officer has a reasonable suspicion to make the breath demand. What is the court saying there, Paul?
1: Uh, th- there's a lot, actually, that they're saying there. Um,
0: it sounds like they're saying is that technically the RTS is only designed and meant to be used in cases where there's a suspicion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a few things there. So there's the ambiguity that's set up Right there's the discussion of that. There's an ambiguity setup in the form. Now the ambiguity setup, of course, is used in this case for the mandatory uh, aspect that it's 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 deliberately ambiguous. But think about that form, and I mean our listeners aren't looking at the form. The form also talks about the things that the police officer uses to form a reasonable suspicion, and then discussion of the last drink. And it's deliberately ambiguous as to whether or not the officer has that last drink information before they form their opinion. And usually that information comes later on.
0: They can only put admission of consumption, but you don't know if the admission was, have you been drinking? Yes. And then make the demand. And then when was your last
1: drink? So, I mean, this form is not designed for mandatory alcohol screening. And this has been my argument the entire time. but. There's also deliberate ambiguity in the form, and that needs to be read against the against the uh, the police in this. I mean, based on this,
0: this is in fact a legal principle that where there is ambiguity in the forms, the ambiguity is read against the creator of the form.
1: Well, it's a legal principle, certainly in insurance. I suppose it may be a legal principle all over the place that it's can be applied that way. But this is uh this is interesting. And you know, I said a few weeks ago that I thought that CRT um decision at the Court of Appeal and the Flores decision and the um the other one, your decision that we discussed a few weeks ago. Chahal? No. Shahal or Chohan. Chohan. Um we're uh were sort of a declaration by the court that they are going to scrutinize these decisions more. And this falls in line with my, my theory there.
0: Yes. Now, speaking of scrutinizing decisions more, this is not the only decision that came from the court this week that was successful on a judicial review.
1: Well, the other one was decided back on May. May 16th, but it was just released this week.
0: And so we want to talk about it. Anna Shamgalova in our office. Big win for her.
1: Anna is, uh, has got this great dry delivery, and she's gotten really good at these judicial reviews. And I'm certainly glad about that because she seems to enjoy them.
0: Yes. And, well, she wins them. And uh, that makes me happy. So (laughs) it makes the clients happy. Everybody's happy. So this is uh, the case of Mr. Dollywall. Mr. Dollywall had um, gone to a meeting at a client's house with a colleague between 3.40 and 5. Had two drinks, each approximately one ounce uh, of vodka. Then went home, had some curried chickpeas and roe tea, which gave him heartburn and acid reflux. Returned to his office and then drove to the Cabela's store to meet his cousin and give him some documents. Um, The road through the Cabela's parking lot was circuitous and had speed bumps, and he had to drive slowly, and he was on his way home when he made a left turn at South Fraser Way and McCallum Road, where he was stopped by Constable Welford. He was still experiencing acid reflux. Constable Welford wasn't wearing a mask, wasn't taking any COVID precautions, So Mr. Dollywall sprayed his uh, hands and face with hand sanitizer and ultimately uh, was then um, uh, investigated for impaired driving and issued an IRP. And the adjudicator basically rejected every argument that he brought. They said, your acid reflux argument, no go, sorry you uh you you last consumed alcohol five hours before you were pulled over, so you wouldn't have had any alcohol in your in your your stomach to regurgitate now, Mr. Dollywall had submitted an expert report that said that people with GERD have or can have abnormally slow levels of gastric emptying, and Mr. Dollywall had also um indicated that he had uh put the hand sanitizer in his face. And the adjudicator is like, meh, that doesn't matter. And as far as his credibility.
1: Of course it matters, but yeah.
0: Yeah. She rejected his credibility for ridiculous reasons. Like, well, you didn't dispute that you were driving badly at, at, at the Cabela's. So I, I don't believe you that you weren't over the limit. Which is a little bit silly because he did dispute it. And she also uh found that his report was or his account of events was not reliable with respect to his um uh his alcohol consumption because his blood alcohol concentration calculations were based on his estimate of the size of the drinks not the actual measured to the to the minute ounce uh or portion of an ounce size yeah. so she says, well, you're not credible about what you had to drink. Now. I'm sorry. <laughs> by contrast, Constable Welford, mm-hmm. wrote that the time of driving was 2139, but that she demanded a breath sample from Mr. Dollywall at 2137.
1: Two minutes before he was pulled over.
0: Yes. Which, of course... Could not possibly be true. She also, in one of her documents, inexplicably, spelled her own name wrong.
1: The adjudicator or the police officer? The
0: police officer. Yeah. possible Welford, one L, but at one point in her documentation, she spells her own name with two L's.
1: This one is very familiar to me. I wonder if I argued it. Um, I note that your name's in there with respect to the calculation of what his uh, blood alcohol concentration would be on the basis of what he had to drink. Yes. Um, and it's very interesting how the court goes through all of these different issues. I agree with Mr. Dollywald that the decision is problematic in a number of ways. And then we've got first, next, on the other hand, for example, second, perhaps the most troubling, <laughs> that's the start of each paragraph. Yeah. Of the following seven paragraphs.
0: Yeah. So the first was that the, the adjudicator acknowledged that there were police records that contained manifest errors about mis- about the timeline and that Mr. Dollywell was probably more accurate in relation to the time. But then the adjudicator's like, but this doesn't cause me to reduce the reliability of the officer's evidence. I'm sorry. The officer literally swore to the truth of events that could not have transpired in the way she described them. But that, that is irrelevant.
1: Is matter.
0: The first error, first manifest flaw. Next, the adjudicator states that he preferred Constable Welford over Mr. Dollywall, where their evidence was in conflict because of what he said was a trope that police. Invariably demand to see a driver's license when pulling a person over. And the court's like, um, no, that's a presumption of regularity in favor of the police that is not permissible.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it is a common thing that they do, but you certainly can't come to that conclusion that they do. And in, in every. Reality. And you certainly cannot come to a presumption of regularity, especially when you see what we see in police reports. Oh, yeah. my gosh. I mean, a presumption of dishonesty is seems to be the the uh, the pattern these days, these days. Yeah.
0: And uh, <laughs> the adjudicator disregarded all sorts of evidence that Mr. Dollywell proffered in support of his uh, uh, application um, by saying that he hadn't deduced evidence. On these things. You didn't provide evidence about this when he did. Like she said that he had no evidence about his driving behavior at Cabela's, like I said, but actually he did explain the the layout and the speed bumps and why he was driving slowly. Um then she she says, Well, you didn't um she or he, I can't remember. Um, you didn't explain how you could have known that how much alcohol was in your two drinks. And the court's like, it doesn't it doesn't matter like yes the ev- it, there is going to be a, an uncertainty in measurement like you and i talk about measurement uncertainty all the time
1: you can always imagine better evidence
0: there is and and measurements by their very nature incorporate a degree of uncertainty but the um the court says it was certainly open to the adjudicator to infer a margin of error in the estimates but it does not follow that the basis for Miss Lee's calculation was completely undermined as a result. The estimates themselves still served as at least some evidence of the quantity of alcohol consumed. What really mattered was how far off the estimates would have to have been in order to raise the product of the VAC calculation from 30 milligrams to over 80.
1: But so Based on what the guy had to drink, his yeah. blood alcohol concentration should have been 30 milligrams based on what he had to drink and his weight. Yeah, But, um, you know, he blew a fail. And of course, there's a, an explanation for it, although you don't theoretically have to have an explanation nope. if you read Goodwin and Symbia closely and and, and and look at the legislation group. after that. That was the whole idea of that. Yeah. But me- in this case, there is there was an explanation, but there's no way you're getting from 30 to 80 with a slight measurement difference. Right. (laughs) Like if it was a quarter of an ounce on either side or a half an ounce on either side or an ounce on either side, you're still not getting to 80 milligrams based on what he had to drink. Yeah. Yeah. But perhaps most troubling of all.
0: Perhaps most troubling of all is the adjudicator's treatment of the evidence that was put before him in support of Mr. Dollywell's regurgitation, which was of central importance to the application. And the adjudicator just said, well, you didn't provide evidence as to how any alcohol would remain in your stomach, except that he did. It was in Jan Semenov's report, previous podcast guest. Yep. He talked about how this can cause false readings on the test even after five hours. And the court said that the report itself contained evidence capable of supporting the inference that alcohol was still in his stomach several hours after his last drink. And in arguing that the decision was a reasonable one, despite the failure to address that evidence, the superintendent suggests the the adjudicator may have been relying on the ASD manual for the proposition that alcohol empties from the stomach relatively quickly after it's consumed. And the court's like, that misses the point, however. The educator did not purport to favor the manual over Mr. Semenoff's report, but instead merely rejected his argument on the basis that there was no evidence to support it, when in fact there was.
1: Well, used Mr. Semenoff's report um, at some point as well for the purpose of rejecting one of his arguments. Yeah. So pick the things, cherry picked the uh, aspects out of Mr. Seminoff's report. Oh, I'm going to use this part to uphold the prohibition, and I'm going to ignore this part.
0: Yep. Yep. Cherry-picking evidence. Never a good look.
1: Well, I mean, the evidence that's been been submitted on behalf of the applicant should uh, be given a fair read. And when you've got an expert's report, you should recognize the fact that the expert would provide the same report, regardless of, of which side they were on. But it doesn't mean that you only pick the things you like out of it and then ignore the things you don't like that would tend to exonerate the individual. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. (laughs) But again, it's a problem with this tribunal. And as I say, this is, as I said with the last one, these cases appear to be, you know, an indication of a bit of a change with the court where they've started to recognize what's going on which is what was recognized in the very first few decisions. And that was reverse engineering, um, reverse engineering it to uphold the, uh, the driving prohibition. And that is now uh, that is now, I think it was fair warning in those decisions, but the tribunal continued many of its practices and, uh here this is a uh, again another clear declaration like we have in those previous two decisions talking about it, that things yep. are changing.
0: But Paul, well, not yeah. all things are good. Not all judicial reviews are successful.
1: No, I know. Yeah. That's uh inevitable. Well, a lot of times it depends on the evidentiary record. Um, you know, sometimes it depends on uh what you figured out to argue, and sometimes you don't have a strong argument.
0: And sometimes you don't identify necessarily the correct case to support your position. Which brings us to the case of Doe. As in, Doe! No.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Um, This is a refusal to provide a sample case where uh, Mr. Tuyen Doe was stopped by constable tan he demanded a breath sample uh mr doe apparently attempted to to blow 15 times or maybe not 15 times there was a dispute about that and ultimately uh his prohibition is upheld by the adjudicator so he brings it on for judicial review and um the uh the court has to consider two essentially two disputes um the first was whether mr doe um actually tried 15 times and whether he was you know not blowing properly into the device and then the second one is whether he conveyed to the officer a reasonable excuse for not providing a sample
1: Yeah. And this seems to be a case where the tribunal gave the officer a baseline of credibility on that one. And just because the officer didn't record it, there's an assumption that it didn't happen. When I think Mr. Doe did explain to the officer.
0: Well, and this is the problem. So uh, the assessment of the arguments on the judicial review begins at paragraph 29. And, um, essentially, the the judge says really only one of the specific complaints advanced on the judicial review, this question of reasonable excuse matters in, uh, in the review hearing. Um, and, but they're potentially tainted by other complaints. One of which was this dispute about the, que- uh, the reason for the traffic stop, because Mr. Doe had said that he was not stopped lawfully and that he was confused and upset as to why he'd been stopped. And the adjudicator, in dealing with Mr. Doe's evidence on that, or argument on that, said, well, I find it very questionable that if you were not advised why you were being stopped, and you were curious the reason behind the stop, why you did not ask Constable Tan the reason behind being pulled over.
1: Problems with that.
0: Hey, wh- where have we heard that language before, Paul?
1: Yeah, I find it questionable.
0: Yes. So.
1: As as well, you're asking, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Do is Vietnamese, pretty much for sure. Uh, he's pulled over by a police officer and uh, he's uh, he's a minority member and he's supposed to start quizzing the officer. He's also an older guy. He's got dentures in his mouth, so he's supposed to start questioning the officer and and putting it to the officer. You want to get tasered? You want to get handcuffed? You want to get thrown in the back of a car? I mean, like let, let's recognize the circumstances of different people in this multicultural province.
0: Yeah. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I appreciate what you're saying and agree, but Mr. Doe never said that in the review hearing. He never said anything about, I didn't ask because of difficulty with language, or I didn't ask because of cultural differences between me and the officer, or because I felt like I was being racially profiled and I didn't feel safe questioning the police, or in my culture, we're taught to respect the police, or whatever his explanation was. Well, Mr. Doe never puts any of this before the adjudicator, and then wants to argue it on judicial review. Classic failure. In the judicial Uh, review hearing, not putting in the evidence in the original hearing that you intend to rely on on a judicial review.
1: I know. And I chastise you for your 200 pages of written submissions covering off every different angle. Um, And sometimes people get their decision and they're not successful and they think, what's with this 15 pages? But, you know, this is an example of why you do it. Yes,
0: it is. Because nobody can ever say Miss Lee didn't raise everything. in sync. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's so, always going to somehow, somewhere be a reference to these types of things.
1: Um, well, it doesn't have to be 30 pages, though, Kyla. All of yours are like 30-page arguments.
0: Well, the problem I suppose is the, the top- shortest is seven. The, the problem is, that the shortest is five. Um, the problem is that not every argument applies in every case. So I have to cover up all the background stuff in every argument so that I have it all in there at least once.
1: I get you. I get you. Anyway, you know, I, I just think in a multicultural society, when you've got a guy with dentures who's there attempting to blow and it's an alleged refusal, um, you know, and he says that he tells the police officer uh, and there's a a concern about him not quizzing the police officer for the reason that he was stopped um, that I, I don't think you have to argue it I well, think the tribunal should recognize it and I think the courts should recognize it
0: you should also not have to argue that a person should behave in a particular manner in order to be believed on a review hearing and again well, we're
1: all the same like it's just a suggestion that we're all the same and it's a pluralistic society and we're all different and everybody's different so i don't know maybe if you're you know anyway
0: this was the criticism of justice kent in flores is that you can't imagine that everybody's all the same and apply common sense conclusions about human behavior that are not grounded in evidence
1: your common sense conclusions yeah
0: And, and yet that's what the adjudicator did, but this, it does not appear to have been argued on the judicial review that that was the case in the, um, in the circumstances. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that the, the person arguing this judicial review didn't bring Flores to the attention of the court. Yeah, There is one tiny little glimmer of victory, and that's found at paragraphs 38 and 39, where the court says, Point C concerns the adjudicator's acceptance of Mr. Tan's evidence that he smelled liquor on Mr. Doe's breath. The adjudicator reasoned that Constable Tan's evidence on this point was credible because the officer said that he only noticed the smell of alcohol after he made the demand for a breath sample, and it was not evidence that would affect the result of the IRP investigation. It was, in effect, a gratuitous observation, and Constable Tan had no reason to lie. Right? Yeah. And the the court does say, look, viewed in isolation, the reasoning on this point is doubtful. As a general proposition, the fact that a witness has no reason to lie is not, in itself, a sufficient reason to conclude that the witness must be telling the truth, and a a self-interested witness who is saying the opposite is lying. But well, then she, the judge it says said, it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, it didn't matter at the point that it came in. At the point that it was noticed, rather.
0: Yeah.
1: Doesn't, doesn't enhance his credibility or not.
0: Well, it also didn't matter because it wasn't central to the decision reached and therefore yep. not a manifest flaw.
1: I guess the thing that's really upsetting to me for all of this is that. Here's Mr. Doe, you know, he fails to argue um, a couple of points at his hearing and then maybe doesn't explain it as well as he should um, at his uh, at his review hearing. And he may very well be innocent, but he didn't have the luck of, you know, recognizing this or knowing this. And he didn't have a, you know, maybe somebody didn't think that was going to be central at the judicial review. And you think about Johnny Depp who lost in one venue and succeeded in another venue. And he wouldn't have succeeded. He succeeded. Despite the fact that, you know, it was appropriate and he was telling the truth, he wouldn't have succeeded. But for the recording um, where, you know, she makes these terrible statements and the fact that she was caught in a lie in some other way. Mm-hmm. And so Mr. Doe here may be completely innocent. And I have to tell you, if it, you know, I had been the adjudicator. I would have come to a very different view. And if you and I had had this case, we would have obviously argued it differently, as every lawyer would. Um, but the sad part of this is that um, he didn't have the uh, he didn't have the recording uh, <laughs> of Amber Heard admitting that uh, that uh, she pulled him over unlawfully, or or the police officer being caught in some other egregious lie to be able to reject the police officer's evidence, and it really calls into question the justice system and it's far from perfect that's for damn sure uh we have these um you know you, you're just lucky often that you have the evidence that you need
0: i don't i want to be clear though i don't want to be taken as saying that this lawyer who did the original hearing or the judicial review did a bad job
1: i'm not knocking them Oh well. The, the, I'm not knocking the lawyer who conducted the hearing or conducted the judicial review. Not at all. It's, it's such a, it's a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like they, the rules are being changed all the time. Uh, the rules on judicial review are in my mind, um, ridiculous. And I've been saying that I'm hoping that the court is taking a more aggressive stance on this, but I, you know, I, maybe I'm just, uh, hopeful rather than hoping or expecting I just would like it. Uh, to be the case. I'm, uh, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated that I see so many times um, where when I look at it, you know, maybe they just missed some piece of information and the person shouldn't have got it. And when I see somebody who's got dentures falling out of their mouth, trying to provide a sample. um, And um, I look at the status messages here that are recorded and the status messages don't, indicate to me that it's a properly functioning approved screening device uh, I come to uh, you know, and, and and that's just not something that necessarily everybody would have recognized. You and me and Grant might have recognized it um, and some of the adjudicators you would think should have recognized it. Uh, but you know these are these are things that you know you don't know what you don't know when you're making the argument A and B it's a moving target but the final my final point here is you know when I look at it, I see Mr. Doe as a guy who shouldn't have got an IRP. Um, the circumstances of his attempts to blow are not covered in in the training. The circumstances of his attempts to blow are not discussed in the alco sensor FST manual anywhere mm-hmm. He's got a and you and I know that there's a lot of people who are incapable of providing a sample and here you are out on the lonely road. With a police officer there holding this thing up and yelling at you, blow, 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 not everybody can do it. And it's uh, it's very upsetting to me to see this. There's, of course, people who are, we, we've had people admit it to us, right? Yeah, I was trying to blow really softly in the hopes that maybe, you know, it would get a really low reading. Um, <laughs> you know, th- that that's rare. There's a lot of occasions where people are not capable of providing a sample. And I think Mr. Doe was probably not capable of providing a sample. I think the decision below is wrong uh, because they are holding people to a standard that is not a human standard.
0: Yep, I agree. Speaking of humans, let's talk about the ridiculous driver of the week. The week, the week, the week, the week. ridiculous driver of the week
1: it's almost always a human except the time that dog took the car for a drive
0: <laughs> was that a ridiculous driver
1: i think we we maybe discussed it but maybe it wasn't it was the ridiculous like driver. one week well there's probably been a few florida crocodiles who tried to drive but we've never covered that
0: um okay so this is a person um in ontario a senior citizen uh, who was driving on uh, Highway 69. (laughs) Favorite highway. At 115 kilometers an hour in a 100 kilometer an hour zone, which like, I'm sorry, but that's not bad driving. That's Vancouver driving.
1: Uh, Is from the moment you hit hope uh, all the way until you get to the, to the, uh, uh, Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal. If you're driving less than 15 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, you are an anomaly.
0: Yep. Yep. This is, you know, it's not lawful. But it's also not abnormal. Anyway, so... If
1: you're you're beyond hope, you can get stopped at 15 kilometers an hour over.
0: Oh, But it's unlikely. On the island, I'm like, why is everybody driving so slow? Because they're all driving like 6 kilometers an hour over the speed limit.
1: Well, it beats a heck out of Manitoba where they drive 10 kilometers an hour under. Anyway, so yeah. this person got stopped
0: 8:47 8, 8, 8, a.m. gets stopped for going 115 in a 100 zone. 8:59 a.m. Another officer stops the same vehicle. Same driver. Traveling 100 in an 80 zone this time on Highway 64. So two two speeding tickets. 12 minutes apart at 75 years old
1: He was going to his alzheimer's support group ooh that was bad oh, i'll bad. never be a comedian with that
0: no you won't
1: bearing particularly bearing in mind my concerns about myself um
0: yeah the podcast
1: i'll get canceled on that one the the alzheimer's people will uh, we'll, uh, they won't remember. Um, Alzheimer's the, killed uh, my that's funny. What's that?
0: Alzheimer's killed my grandmother. So don't be like that.
1: No, I know. And it's I've got family members who are suffering it and who have suffered it. And I am fearful of it too, but thankfully all my family members have a good sense of humor. So it's, uh, one of those sad human things. Um, and your grandmother was lovely and, uh, I'm, uh, Sorry for your loss. um Yeah, twice in what was it? Fifteen minutes?
0: Twice in twelve minutes.
1: Twice in twelve minutes. Well, maybe they'll give him a two for one if he disputes them both. He can go to court.
0: Yeah, I don't know that they do that in Ontario, but
1: you know, it could be a it could be an incontinence issue. There's all sorts of things you can make fun of the seniors for. um You know, maybe the depends were full. Um, you know, who That's knows. Was there, was their signal light on the entire time? That's what I want to know.
0: Look, he was late for bingo.
1: Was he wearing a hat? If he's wearing a hat and driving a Chrysler, then usually they're driving 15 kilometers below the speed limit. Maybe he was just missing his hat. Oh my gosh.
0: When Grant, uh, was still working in traffic enforcement, he, Grant Gaka True, former yeah. podcast guest, um, he once told me about a time where he pulled over one guy for excessive speeding. A week later, he's out by the, uh, airport, the Vancouver airport. He sees the same car. It's speeding excessively. He pulls the guy over again. Same guy. And the, uh, the guy says to him, Oh no, you pulled me over a week ago. And Grant says, Yeah, yeah what did you learn from that? And the man says to him, You're everywhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's a good answer
0: yeah grant that's didn't, a good grant didn't impound his car it was one of the rare times where he did not impound the car um him a regular that is the kick. right answer Coley. <laughs> yep <laughs> he's learned
1: i'm surprised that grant said anything like that i mean he he could be he's quite clever and he's uh but he's also all clever enough to not say anything um in those circumstances, but yeah, that would have been a 30 day impound yep. for that poor fellow. So Grant, Grant did him a big favor. Uh The public should know, you know, he was widely hated for a long time. Uh He was referred to by his colleagues as Darth Radar. He still, as I understand it, holds the record for the most excessive tickets and impounds in the province. Um But he was always... Decent. My clients never complained about him uh in the manner in which he dealt with them. He was always very professional and he was lovely to deal with anytime you had to deal with it. So his uh, reputation that he earned by drivers in the province, a lot of people called him some horrible names, was completely unfair in my view. Uh, and the one video that you could find still maybe on YouTube um, supported his <laughs> overall professionalism. Yeah. What did that guy call him? I sure. forget now. Traffic. Oh, Robot Vulture. The Robot Vulture. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. Well, that's our podcast. Uh, if you need to get in touch with us about a driving law related issue, give us a call at 604 685 Or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.